Well, I've entitled this The Upside Down Kingdom. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 55. You say that looks like a, very much a, a message you would do around Christmas. Well, you wouldn't be wrong, of course. The Eastern Church, and you think of uh, Syria, Western Church, North Africa, back in the antiquity, or early church days. Uh, Eastern Church celebrated Christmas on January 6th, which would have been Monday this last week. I figured since Pastor Pat was in Matthew 2 last week, we could look at uh, Luke chapter 1 this week. According to Dr. Thomas Tolley, a scholar in the field of liturgics, which he's done a lot of work studying the Jewish calendar, the early Christian calendar, as it dealt with the Roman calendar, he's done some fascinating study on the January 6th and December 25th date. As of late, we've been told that a lot of Christian culture and messaging wasn't established until um, Constantine, uh, till the 4th century, which would be about 370 to 380s. We're told that the deity of Christ wasn't invented until the councils then. We're, we're told that the canon of Scripture wasn't formulated until then, and we're told that Christmas wasn't official until then. And so therefore, it borrowed from pagan Romanism. And Tali, in his work, uh, notes that the Roman ruler Aurelian, who lived between 270, was assassinated in 275, in his attempt to counter the pervasive growth of Christianity through the Roman Empire to bring it back to a unity of paganism, he established December 25th, that time frame, as the birth of the unconquered son. And of course, that, the misnomer is that what gives Christianity credence is it's nationalization. We find that big. And those in power establish reality, right? We're told today. And of course, that ignores the testimony of Scripture that God's Word has the authority and power to establish the church and to tell us who Jesus Christ is. This so-called narrative ignores the interpretation and authority of God's Word. It's very simplistic, but yet naive. Well, a little bit of background just for the fun of it. Early Christian writings, you can read many of the early church, we'll call them pastors, uh, observed that the Eastern and Western churches, again, Syria, North Africa area, I'm being very simplistic with the regions, they prioritized, to get this, and it should be, this is what Christians do, they prioritized the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. In the West, March 25th, and in the East, April 6th, served as the dates for the Passover suffering of Christ. Now, here's how this worked. And they, were, they were working with the calendar, no doubt, as it related to the Jewish Passover and the connection to Christ's suffering and resurrection. But particularly in the Jewish tradition, there was a tradition, and mind you, the early Christian church were made up of Jewish Christians. The tradition was that a prophet was conceived and died on the same day. So the church calculated, and we're going to say individual churches based on the, the letter writing, calculated the birth of Jesus to be December 25th, the Western church, working backwards from uh, March 25th, and the Eastern church, January 6th, working from April 6th. Those two dates were recognized by Christians in early antiquity, long before Aurelian in 270, and long before Christendom nationalized the Christmas holiday. So we're just going to go back to our roots and look at the priority. What did the church prioritize? The, the sufferings of Christ. 
and then worked from there. And so we've been celebrating December 25th for quite a long time, acknowledging at least our Lord's birth, but prioritizing his death and resurrection for that is the climax of Christ's glorious work for us and our freedom in Christ, our salvation. What made the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus a great cause of celebration? And, and for that, we're going to look at Mary's song, the Magnificat. But to do that, you see these themes of promise, promise to Abraham, promise to David. And for that, really quickly, before we look at the text, that might do us well to remember God's promise to Abraham and to David. So let me start actually backing up by referring to the first promise in Genesis 3.15 to Adam. The community of the Messiah, the seed of the promised one through Eve, through whom Jesus would come. The community of the Messiah had long by faith looked to the fulfillment of the promise of God to the first man, Adam, that he would send a, a divine champion from the seed of the woman to crush the diabolical dragon with his works and his community. Two seeds, two works, two warriors. And as we funnel through scripture, this river that runs us through from Genesis to the book of Revelation, the community of the Messiah would be gathered in Abraham, who, mind you, was a Gentile, if we can say that himself. That's tough to say Gentile because you don't have Jew to contrast to. But he was a pagan. I'm attempting one of those reading through the Bible with McChain. And I've been, we just went through Genesis 11 through 12 the last few nights doing that. And you see that he was from the Ur of the Chaldeans. He is a pagan. They, they worshiped the moon god. And the Lord calls him out and saves him. In Genesis 22, verse 17, the promise that the Lord makes to Abraham after that pivotal moment where the Lord provides a sacrifice for his son Isaac, picturing Christ's ultimate sacrifice for us. He says this, your offspring, and this is fascinating because we look at offspring as corporate, but Paul in Galatians 3 also says it can be singular. It's how that word can work. Seed, corporate seed, singular. But notice this, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, singular. And in your offspring, union with that offspring, the one who will conquer the, possess the gate of his enemies, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So that through union with Abraham's seed, singular, a he who would possess the gate of his enemies, the whole world would be brought into this blessing. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. So a pagan saved, the Jewish line established, Israel established. The covenant's promise isn't given to God's people to protect it until Christ comes. But then unfolding through the Abrahamic seed, Christ, blessing to the Gentiles, to the nations. In John eight thirty nine, unbelieving Jews sought to make a claim to Abraham's family. And interesting enough, Jesus says in John eight forty four, you are of your father, the devil. Well, that causes us to go, What? They said, well, we are from Abraham's family. He said, you are of your father, the devil. Because they weren't trusting in the ultimate promise that God had given through Abraham. And so Paul can say in Romans 2.28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. 
So we see that even the true Jews within the household of Israel were true Jews if they looked by faith to the promise of Christ. And this is why Ishmael, who's of the flesh of Abraham, could be outside the community of the Messiah, while Isaac of promise could be inside. And Ruth, who was outside, is brought inside as a member of Messiah's assembly. So the promise, Adam, unfolds with Abraham to David. And this is fascinating. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised to David that he would raise up the son from the sons of David to build God's household, family, and kingdom. And David, in 2 Samuel seven nineteen, if you've never seen this before, you might want to jot it down. Or if you, we now have electronics, right? A lot of times we don't, I don't have you look at every passage because of the time it takes. You got to count that in the sermon too, time, right? To look at all those texts. You see, by the time we'd been quit talking, we would have found it, Chris. But with our electronics, you can just go, boom, 2 Samuel seven nineteen. This is fascinating. David recounting God's promise of a son who would build an everlasting family says this. Oh, Lord God, you've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is Torah, this is instruction, this is law for mankind, O Lord God. So David, let me just read Ralph Davis, he says it the best way here. We must forgive David his goosebumps. He seems to see that the kingship of Yahweh guaranteed his dynasty would not only bring rest to Israel, but would extend Yahweh's sway and benefits to all humanity. As if the Davidic dynasty were to be the mechanism for fulfilling the Abrahamic promise of blessing to all the families of the earth. Walter Kaiser picked him intentionally. Translates instruction for mankind as charter for humanity. And he writes, we call this Torah a charter because it is the plan and prescription for God's kingdom, whereby the whole world would be blessed. It is a grant conferring powers, rights, and privileges to David and his seed for the benefit of all mankind. See how universal it is. Well, this one I would like you to look at, Revelation chapter 12, because this is the apex. If you want to see where all this is going, again, little Mary, and we want to get to that, in this, in this little young virgin who's just this blip on the map of Galilee in this town that was despised, Nazareth. Nobody cared about Nazareth. That's why Nathan said, who comes from Nazareth? She's swept up into this. This is what's so amazing. And in her song, she's reflecting these truths. But Revelation 12, let's really take it universal. This is where this is going. And for that, you say, well, what verse? Verse 5. Revelation 12, verse 5. It gives you the, the picture. It's a vision the Apostle John has. In verse 1, maybe backing it up a little bit. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. If you're letting Scripture inform you, you're going to remember Joseph and his dreams, sun, moon, and stars, bowing down before him as the Lord raised him up as a picture even of Christ and Joseph delivering the people of Israel. That was pivotal in redemptive history. And now this verbiage is taken and applied to this woman who's clothed with the sun, the moon, and a crown of 12 stars. 
Now, this woman may very well be a picture of Eve. It may very well be a picture of Israel as a nation. It may very well be a picture of God's people, Israel, particularly the, the remnant, those who are trusting in Christ. It may be a picture of Mary or of all of them all brought together. But here we get the, the point in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne Verse 9, notice he's caught up. It's ascension talk. Birth, rule, and his ruling involves his ascension at the right hand of God. This is big. This is universal. This is heavens and earth kind of rule. Notice the catching up and the ruling with the rod are equated. Verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down. You could pull from Psalm 89, Rahab, who empowered Egypt. He was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Reminds me of John's statement that he would be lifted up and draw men to him. And in so doing, he would crush the devil's power. Or as 1 John says, he would crush the works of the devil. This is the apex. And we too, like Mary, have been brought into this wonderful family line and family promise, this community of the Messiah. So here, Gabriel, we're well acquainted with, makes this announcement to Mary. In this obscure village of Nazareth in Galilee, the Lord's messenger visits Mary, a young, meaningless, so to speak, to the world, virgin, with the announcement that this Messiah, who would save sinners, rule the world, and destroy the dragon to reverse and raise the promise from paradise and its destruction, in Genesis 1 through 3, would raise it up into the glories of heaven would enter her womb by the power of God. <laughs> it's just amazing. Yes, like David said, it gives you goosebumps. So we're going to see four participants of the kingdom mission. We want to step back from the sufferings that we are going through, our, our sorrows, and remember with Mary join her in a faith-filled praise for God's promise to us in Christ. And so we're going to look at the kingdom ruler, the kingdom creator who creates it, the kingdom messenger, and the kingdom members. Because we want to know how we join it, right? The kingdom ruler, the kingdom creator, the kingdom messenger, and the kingdom members. So in 25 through 33, we're going to unfold the kingdom ruler. And we're Luke chapter 1. We'll start actually in verse... 26. Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Well, sixth month connects us back to the account of Elizabeth and her, the time frame. It had been five months in verse 24 that she'd kept herself hidden. So she's bearing John the Baptist. It's correlating with her time frame. This, in other words, is not some type of 
celestial, fantastical, mythological time and space. This is human history. Two families, Elizabeth's family, Mary's family. You can say, well, they're connected to the same family, but two families, two women are connected together here on earth in Israel. The king of Judea is Herod. That's the political history. The priest, the religious history, the temple history, the priest in Jerusalem from the order of Abijah was Zechariah. In other words, this is historical. Now it says in verse 26, as we want to know again, the kingdom ruler, this is in history. We're not trusting in a ruler who is a fraud, who is fantastical. Now notice in verse 26, we see the angel Gabriel was sent from God. So there is an earthly history and there is a heavenly history. It's not, heavens are not seen as this mythological, again, fantastical time and space. In other words, neither earth nor heaven are cast into some fantastical drama. The events occurring on earth are situated in humanity's time and space. They're not fantasy. The events occurring from heaven are interwoven in this moment with human history. Two worlds, heaven and earth, coexist in reality for a messenger from God is sent to a city of Galilee. And if that's not enough, there are two more threads that Gabriel ties together. He ties together as a messenger from heaven. And he ties together, he comes and he's dealing with Mary on earth. So heaven and earth, this is what Christ does, by the way. We see these two realms meeting. There are another two threads with Gabriel. We find Gabriel connected to Daniel 8, the Old Testament promises with the New Testament fulfillment. Two eras drawn together in this moment. What is so fascinating about Gabriel? In Daniel 8, 16, he is interpreting this messianic dream or vision or apocalyptic prophecy of the future that Daniel has in Daniel 7. And it's huge. And Gabriel comes on the scene in chapter 8 and begins to interpret human history in light of this apocalyptic, cosmological fulfillment in Christ. And I'll give you a taste of it. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. If electronically you want to move quickly there. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. By the way, I've done, been doing a lot of reading on Jewish thinking about this text. They saw many, many, I'll say, there are different views, but many saw the Messiah as a divine Messiah. So when you've got Bart Ehrman telling us that Christ's deity is invented in the fourth century, he's ignoring huge history. And this text is pivotal. I wonder many of the early Christian church were Jewish. They saw Christ as this one, divine. Not, not just, not divine like the Caesar's son of God, that they're just reigning. The divine one, deity. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we are to be astounded that Gabriel, this messenger, who is the one interpreting for Daniel in chapter 8, this cosmological promise that the Son of Man, the Christ, this divine hero and champion who would bring everything together under his sway and power and authority and an everlasting dominion, this messenger is the same one coming to little Mary in the little town of Nazareth. 
Old Testament promise, New Testament fulfillment all united here. And so we read again in verse 26 and 27 of Luke 1. He comes to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, Christianity's great threat to secularism and religion is its historicity. As long as a particular religion can be consigned to mythology or a dream world, it poses no threat to society. For example, while the Roman government during the time of Christ and the apostles could synthesize and Romanize the religions of the world with their conquests, they just adapted them and they could do that, Christianity stood out as a threat. Christianity proclaimed that the ultimate authority, the Messiah, was ruler of heaven and earth. Christianity claimed that Jesus was the only savior of the world and keen over all his believing subjects. Christianity believed that human governments existed under the universal providential rule of God to be set up and torn down by his will and his providential plan. And this meant that all anti-Christians had to eventually attack the truth claims, the historicity of Christianity. And interesting enough, Christianity has no problems with history. Peter Williams may be familiar with him as the warden or CEO. Warden, I guess, would be our Christian way of taking CEO and making it more acceptable. He's the warden of Tyndale House. He has been on Together for the Gospel. There's many YouTube lectures. He's written a book called Can We Trust the Gospels? Received his PhD in the study of ancient languages related to the Bible from Cambridge University. And he's demonstrated in numerous lectures and debates with critics and in his book, Can We Trust the Gospels? And I took this from his book. The fact that the Gospels recount architecture, culture, economics, geography, language, law, politics, religion, social stratification, weather, and so much more. It not only, and I got this from one of his audios, well, not only the historicity of the Bible, but the eyewitness accounts of the Gospel narrative. The four Gospels, he writes, mentions 26 towns, including small and minor villages. Some that have just been recently unearthed. The writers are familiar with the walking distance between these towns. Some that have been recently been exposed. How in the world? If they wrote it years later, hundreds of years later, it evolved. Between these towns, the walking distance is measured. The seasonal climate the topography of the Mount, uh, the, the Sermon of the Mount, the, whether the grass was green, what season did it match? You can go back and look at the seasonal climate and go, oh, yeah, it was at that time. Their culture, their politics, we don't need to account for everything here, but Peter Williams in his book focuses on just on the names, a whole chapter on names. You can identify names to a particular geography and time and place. I mean, it, how many names do you have? And you're just pulling out. Do you have any Nebuchadnezzar names here today? Belshazzar name? I mean, you don't have those kind of names. They're not common or familiar. You can lock down an era based on names and their place, their social popularity. He writes, if a particular name is common to a time and place, there are distinguishing modifiers used, like James, the son of Alphaeus, or James, the son of Zebedee, or Simon Peter, or Simon the leper, or Simon the zealot, or Mary Magdalene, or Mary, the mother of James. Obviously, Mary and Simon are pretty common names. So they had to be specified. And he observes that the Gnostic Gospels, 
like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene or the Gospel of Judas, and so on, mention very few historical settings and people, not to mention even in his words, from outer space. They're, they're not in this time and space. Well, going back to the Bible, what do we see just in verse 26? We see Nazareth, a city of Galilee in the land of Israel. And where is Israel? Located along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It's actual. Joseph, a common name for a Jew for this period. Connected to a historical lineage, the family of David. Even Paul knows that he's from the household of Benjamin. Mary too, or Miriam is the Hebrew, is a common name. And she has to be specified and differentiated. She's a virgin, betrothed to Joseph. She will give birth to the Messiah without sexual relations. It will be a miracle. It's an unrepeatable act of God, interrupting nature to signify the coming of the Messiah. So the kingdom ruler, it's a king and a kingdom in history. But a king and kingdom marked by grace. Verse 28. Oh, you can see how this could turn into like four parts. (laughs) Right? Uh, It's just so fun. Verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings. We're built off of the Greek word kara, which is joy, to rejoice. And the ESV translated is just generic as greetings. But I find it fascinating that Mary, actually in verse 47, responds, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So he, the greeting is rejoice as some translations, oh, graced one or favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. See, there's your word for greeting. It's different from the word for greetings. Rejoice, oh, favored one. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor, grace with God. What marks the angel's announcement is so gracious that it's such a cause for joy. I mean, she's troubled. Who wouldn't be? Zechariah 1 says in verse 19, or Zechariah in Luke 1, 19, Gabriel says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Who wouldn't be fearful and troubled? He says, don't be afraid. You found favor with God. This king is marked by grace. Notice even in the fact that he is named Jesus. Look at 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be, called, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Jesus is the Greek translation. We get Jesus. You don't have the J sound coming over in the Greek. So they took the, the I, as we would look at it, the Yoda, and the Eta, an E sound, and blurred it together. So you get Ye, the Y sound. It's Ye, Seuss. That's the Greek. But it comes from Yeshua. Or if you want to use the Indo-European, um, Joshua, J sound. His name means Savior. That's why she doesn't need to be afraid. Because the one she's going to bear is her Savior. God is acting in grace. Brothers and sisters, this is the highest comfort for sinners, the saviorship of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, that's to Mary. But Mary, as we're going to see, if we can get there to the Magnificat, sees herself as a pattern for for believers. This is our comfort. 
Jesus said we shouldn't be afraid of the one who can kill the body, but he who can destroy the body and soul in hell. So you can have health and you can have riches and family and friends and esteem and a name and yet be judged for eternity under God's justice. What is that? But you can be sick, diseased, in poverty, destitute, rejected, demeaned, lonely, abandoned, abused, ashamed, and have Christ, the Savior of the world, and have God. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10 can say, as sorrowful, because abuse and suffering is real. It weighs on us. We're not just dancing in the flowers, pretending among the bubbles of the air. It's real. So Paul can say, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. That's the apparent contradiction of the Christian life. While we're still dealing with this outer man, we're in this world, we're dealing with suffering. Real things have shaped us and hurt us and affected us. At the same time, we have the most precious. We have God in Christ. And so Gabriel can say, don't be afraid. He's the Savior. But he's also the Son of the Most High. And this underlines that God the Most High has ordained his representative to rule by sovereign calling. In other words, if he just came to rule and just to set things right, we're all in big trouble because we're all fellow sinners who have offended God's law. So what this glorious Messiah does first is he steps down as a savior to save sinners. And then is raised and ascended and he's called the Son of the Most High. It's a title that he is God's representative Oh, what a blessing that he came as Savior and through his death, resurrection on our behalf to pay our debt, to provide the, the credit that we needed, perfect righteousness to stand before God. That's been credited to our account. And then he's been raised and declared the Son of the Most High, the representative, the Messiah. And now we enjoy the blessings of his rule in our life by his Spirit as we cling to his promises by faith. But we are awaiting for that final day of judgment that he will bring. He's been judged for us, but he will bring judgment to the world. And so in Luke 1.32, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Is it any wonder that in Revelation 5, we see this lion lamb and he alone has the right to open the covenant seals to the earth as owner and possessor of the heavens and the earth. And he alone has the right to take that covenant and to unleash judgment as the lion and the lamb, the sacrifice, the savior, and the Messiah. I want to read Charles Spurgeon to you to give you a taste of what may have gone on in heaven behind the scenes as he's ready to step down and enter the dark womb of Mary. Spurgeon says, again, starting the scene in heaven, go, says the father, and your father's blessing on your head. And then comes the unrobing. How do angels crowd around to see the Son of God take off his robes? He laid aside his crown. He he said, my father, I am Lord over all, blessed forever. But I will lay my crown aside and be as mortal men are. And so he strips himself of his bright vest of glory. Father, he says, I will wear a robe of clay just such as men wear. And then he takes off all those jewels wherewith he was glorified. He lays aside his starry mantles and robes of light to dress 
himself in the simple garments of the peasant of Galilee. What a solemn disrobing that must have been. And next, can you picture the dismissal? The angels attend the Savior through the streets until they approach the doors. When an angel cries, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and let the king of glory through. Oh, methinks the angels must have wept when they lost the company of Jesus. When the Son of Heaven bereaved them of all of its light, but they went after him, and they descended with him, and when his spirit entered into flesh and he became a babe, he was attended by that mighty host of angels, who after they had been with him to Bethlehem's manger and seen him safely laid on his mother's breast, and their journey upwards appeared to the shepherds and told them that he was born king of the Jews, the Father sent him. It was from everlasting that his mighty fingers grasped the pen, the stylus of ages, and wrote his own name, the name of the eternal Son of God. It was from everlasting that he signed the eternal compact with his father that he would pay blood for blood, wound for wound, suffering for suffering, agony for agony, and death for death in behalf of his people. It was from everlasting that he gave himself up without a murmuring word, that from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot he might sweat blood, that he might be spit upon, pierced, mocked, rent asunder, suffer the pain of death and the agonies of the cross. Pause my soul in wonder. What? Believer, has he been so long about your salvation and will he not accomplish it? Has he from everlasting been going forth to save me and will he lose me now? What? Has he had me in his hand as his precious jewel and will he now let me slip between his precious fingers? Did he choose me before the mountains were brought forth or the channels from the deep stopped out? And will he lose me now? Impossible. Impossible. Now this takes us to kingdom creator. Jesus, the kingdom ruler, is the covenant Messiah. He's the, we see the kingdom creator, our triune God. So look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? I mean, think about it. Mary's womb is empty of life's potency. Her womb is barren of the seed of life. It's like the empty and formlessness of the world in Genesis 1. Uninhabitable, devoid of life. Mary would require a sovereign act of God to fill her womb with life. And so, what does Gabriel respond with in verse 35? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power, that would be the Holy Spirit's work, of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Verse 37 reminds us that the incarnation is an act of God in three persons, right? Verse 37 is the sum of it. For nothing will be impossible with God. So the Holy Spirit works in the incarnation, being the power of the Father. Unless we impersonalize the Spirit in some kind of Unitarianism, the angel declares that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. It's personal. There's fellowship. And further, the Spirit will overshadow Mary. What, what kind of language is this? Overshadow to come upon you. Well, it's redemptive, actually. It is rich. You ask, why did you go from womb to Genesis 1? There's a reason. Because of the overshadowing language used. In creation, this concept of overshadowing is a redemptive picture that unites the Genesis 1 account of God creating the world and the Spirit hovering and brooding over creation, like a mother hen, in creation activities, sanctifying the world for God's glory. In the temple, tabernacle, overshadow 
is a redemptive picture of the spirit through the hovering glory cloud leading Israel in a pillar of fire through the Red Sea and into the wilderness of Mount Sinai, where God's presence condescended, came upon, overshadowed in a glory cloud, sanctifying the holy mountain and the tabernacle and the temple. And it all finds its apex in the incarnation. As John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled, overshadowed, come upon And we've beheld his glory, glories of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ is inaugurated as the living temple. Might it be that the Apostle John is interpreting the angel's words that we see with Gabriel? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Most High will send the Holy One, the Son, the living temple. The Spirit would act to knit the human nature of Jesus like a tent, if you want to use analogies conjoining his human nature in union with his divine nature. Inseparable, but in distinction. United, but unmixed in the one person of the eternal son. Two natures, beautiful harmony, united in the one person, not a mixture. I wanted to read a little bit from the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll start with question 35 to see the importance of this. Question 35. I think you appreciate this. What does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? Answer. That the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the work of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a truly human nature, so that he might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers and sisters in every way except for sin. We're going to back up to question 12 then, because we want to see the relevance to us too. Question. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? Answer. God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Question 13. Well, can we make this payment ourselves? Answer. Certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Question 14. Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? Answer, no. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. Question 15. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? Answer, one who is a true and righteous human, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also true God. Question 16. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous human? Answer, God's justice demands that human nature which has sinned must pay for sin, but a sinful human nature could never pay for others. Question 17, why must the mediator also be true God? So that the mediator, by the power of his divinity, might bear the weight of God's wrath in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness in life. And lastly, question 18 for us. Then who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time a true and righteous human? Answer, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is given to us to completely deliver us and make us right with God. And what is the response to that? Faith, trust, amen, let it be. You see, in Luke one thirty eight, look at her response to this, because she's asking, how can this be? And, she's, and then Gabriel says, nothing's impossible with God. Our triune God's involved. And Mary, what does she say in verse 38? Behold, 
I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Look at Elizabeth's commentary on this in verse 45. And she says to Mary, blessed is she who believed. That was a statement of faith that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now in Mary's praise song, she perceives herself as a pattern of the way in which God saves. And she includes all those who receive God's grace as sinners or as sharers in God's grace with her. The instrument for receiving this grace is faith and trust. So how does the believing sinner respond to God's grace and salvation? Let it be to me according to your word, to your promise. The Lord gives to sinners the promise of his salvation in Christ through the announcement of his word and the preaching of the gospel. He says, this is my son. The sinner receives God's saving grace by confessing, let it be, amen, to me according to your word. God doesn't receive faith, but it's quality. Faith is weak and empty. As Calvin said, it's, it's empty and receiving God's sovereign grace. Let it be to me according to your word. You've, point, you've shown me my sin. You've shown me Christ the Savior. You've promised that those who trust in Christ by faith, who rest in him, who trust in him, who say, let it be to me according to your word, that you will surely be faithful. And that is a statement of faith. So we've seen the kingdom ruler is Jesus, the kingdom creator is the triune God, the kingdom messenger. And for this, it's, we're just going to look at it very briefly. What it is, is, is it's simply a preview of John the Baptist's ministry. Luke is setting you up that the Lord has sent the messenger who is to prepare the way for the messenger, namely Jesus Christ. So in verse 39, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We're seeing here in Luke 1, John the Baptist has a baby participating in this prophetic announcement that Christ is the one. It should draw your mind to Malachi 3.1, that there will be a messenger who will go before the way of the messenger of the covenant. Isaiah 40, the voice crying out in the wilderness. And I would encourage you sometime to look at Isaiah 40. A voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And then what does he do? He pans, as you've had in your Isaiah class, if you've been going through that, it pans to the shepherd who rules with his might, who holds the heavens in his hand. But first, to come to take sheep into his bosom and to lead them and care for them, he first, what does he do? He comes to the bosom of Mary and he's tended and cared in order that he might raise, rise up as our sacrifice, that he might take us as a shepherd and secure us in his bosom. The kingdom messenger, John the Baptist, but previews Christ. He is the messenger of salvation. Finally, the kingdom members, because we do have to close with, how do I get in? <laughs> it needs to be a posture of faith, a position of emptiness. We've already seen that God gives his grace through faith. Faith is not accepted based on its good qualities. We see that in much literature today. Quality of faith. It'll say faith lo is loving. 
So love becomes the quality of faith. No, it's the posture of emptiness and helplessness. The quality is Christ. That's God's, Christ is God's power. Luther described two theologies, two ways of looking at approaching God. He said the theology of glory is one in which you think God accepts you based on your qualities. You know, outweigh your good with your bad. That's he called the theology of glory. It's my glory. And the theology of the cross is that God reveals himself through the message of the cross. God's message through the cross is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's message through the cross is that all sinners must be judged by God's eternal wrath. God's message through the cross is that if you see the foolishness of your sin, which you thought was wise, and if you see the weakness of your human effort to appease God, what you thought was human power, and you confess that and look to Christ, then God will act on your behalf in Jesus. We tend to narrow the glory of Jesus to his ascension. But do we think of the cross as the glory of Jesus? You can look at John 12, again, 27 through 33, I referenced earlier, where Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The cross is a, it's paradoxical. It's upside down king and upside down kingdom. What do I mean by that? I mean that, From a worldly perspective, he was defeated, and yet he won. From a worldly perspective, he lost, and yet he gained the victory. Because he had to receive the judgment on our behalf. Now notice how Mary describes the character of one that God saves. Number one, God saves, he turns sorrow into joy. Verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He procures joy from a believing soul. Upside down things, right? He comes to someone empty and meaningless to the world, gives joy through Christ. In verse 48, the king looks on the humble state of a servant. They're not offering the Lord anything. They're empty. So we see in verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Three, the mighty one has done great things for the lowly. So God saves, bringing joy. The king looks down on the humble state of a servant. And who does that? Much less the God of the universe. Three, the mighty one has done great things for the lowly. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. It's just upside down. The one who's above steps down to raise up. Who does this? Number four, the merciful one has filled the fearful. Verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him. That's a statement of faith. It's using the Old Testament of Abraham, fearing the Lord, trusting the Lord. And it's from generation to generation. So the merciful one, the one full of mercy, dumps out his mercy upon those who come empty, trusting him. They're not fearing themselves. They're not esteeming themselves. They're fearing and trusting the Lord. They're empty looking to him and he fills them with mercy. Five, the strong one exalts the humble. And we see this in 51. He's shown strength with his arm. Think of Isaiah 53. The arm of the Lord has been revealed. It's in Christ. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So he asks, where are the mighty despots? Where, where's the Herods? The, the, where's Augustus? Where's Rome? Where's Assyria? That's what he does. Empty things, turns them upside down. The sufficient one fills the hungry. Verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And he is the rememberer of his servant. The rememberer, verse 54. 
He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and this is where our hope is, brothers and sisters, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And who is his offspring? Paul will say in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now I want to draw it all together with verse 58 because often we miss that. And this, this is something. Don't, just don't miss this. Mary, verse 58, remained with her about three months, but that's not it. This is it. And returned to her home. You hear that? No, you didn't hear that, right? You didn't hear. There's no fanfare. There's no village celebration. There's no blessings from her nation, Israel. No applause from her conqueror, the empire of Rome. Mary, silence, returned home. She would bear the stigma of infidelity. Rabbinic writings in the Talmud, the Mishnah, would depict Mary as an immoral woman, an adulterer, and Jesus as the son of an adulterer. See, the religious leaders, and this is helpful for us as Christians, they didn't deny the historicity of Jesus, his birth, or his miracles. They simply imputed immorality to his birth and sorcery to his works. They attributed what God said from heaven as from below. But see, this is the beauty of justification. The sinner in his ungodly state is declared right with God before the tribunal of God's throne by the merit of Jesus Christ, according to his word. Mary believed the word of God. When you are gripped by your sin and receive the promise of God to credit Jesus' obedience to your account and credit your sin to Jesus' account, you may be rejected by the world and reminded of your shame, guilt, and failure. But the judge of heaven and earth has declared your status before his law right with him, sins paid. So when you receive by faith the word of his promise, you may very well, like Mary, just walk home a sinner declared a saint. Angels rejoice in heaven, but on earth a deafening silence. But just remember that God in Christ came down and went up to sit on the throne of God. And as surely as he has risen, you are accepted in Jesus. And I close with this song that you know so well. We could sing it together, we won't. A little town of Bethlehem. A little town of Bethlehem. How still we see thee lie. Silence, right? Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Oh, Lord, what can we do but say we rejoice. Rejoice in you, our God, that you turn things upside down. The king who comes down, the king upside down, goes to the cross who loses and wins, who's defeated and gains the victory, who is crushed, but crushes the arch enemy, the devil, our sin, and death. And we'd ask that like Mary is this wonderful pattern, we would look by faith and say, let it be to me according to your word. In Christ's name, amen.